Today in Inside Marketing, we'll be talking about sponsorship in sport and how the pandemic affected sports marketing and sports generally. I'll be joined by Ronan McCormick from Heineken, one of the world's biggest players in sports sponsorships. I'll also be joined by David McHugh from Line of Sports to give you a real insight into the world of sports marketing and how the pandemic affected it, only on this week's Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Marketing, where we're going to talk about how the pandemic affected the world of sports and sports marketing and sponsorships. I'm delighted to be joined by longtime listener, first time caller, Ronan McCormick from Heineken Senior Brand Manager, Heineken Ireland. Welcome, Ronan. Hi, Dave. Great to be here. Yeah, great to have you. And I'm also delighted to be joined by David McHugh, who's Managing Director at Line of Sports. Welcome, David. Thanks for having me on. No problem. We're going to kick off... There's an article today in the Irish Times entitled uh, When the Players' Voices Echo Sports Sponsorship in Uncharted Territories. It's an intriguing title, Ron. It's slightly somber and, no pun intended, sobering. Um, I then figured out it literally means when the players' voices echo, but it was quite a draw me in at the start. And you talk about, what is it, like 14 months ago, going back to the start of all this, the postponement of the Leinster um, versus Saracens Heineken Champions Cup quarterfinal. Now, in your article, and we've said this before, you rightly point out that Public safety comes first, you know, it's the most important thing. So it was the right thing to do. I remember even Cheltenham going ahead at the time and I thought that was a bit mad for that to go ahead. But like sports stopped, it was a bit of a shock. But I want to kick off there. Take me back to that time, Ronan. As a as a sponsor of a premium European club competition, what was going on in your mind and given the uncertainty of what was happening and, and your plans and in terms of, I know these things are complicated. So what was it like being in Heineken looking after that campaign at the time? Yeah, I mean, it's I suppose it feels like a lifetime ago now in, in many respects. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think there was a, a touch of inevitability about it. Um, we kind of just sensed the way that the landscape was going, that it was uh, likely to happen. Um, I mean, I think the overriding feeling really, first and foremost, as a fan, is just disappointment in that mm. something you're... I think, you know, so many people were looking forward to going and attending and watching, you know, what was to fall by the wayside. I think, I think it was called off around... The 16th of March and I think the following day, Euro 2020, which we were to be involved in as well, mm-hmm. also fell. And it was almost then just like a, a domino effect um, across kind of all sports, all cultural events um, as, the, as the days and weeks went by. So I think first and foremost, it's disappointment. I think then you look at it kind of with your, with your business hat on and just, you know, I suppose you consider the, the implications from a, a planning point of view, whether it was media that we would have had planned, PR, yeah. match day setups, match day visibility. I mean, a quarter final, particularly a home quarter final, the Heineken Champions Cup is, is a big deal for us. Mm. Um, it's a big occasion. Um, your thoughts then switch to the on-trade, um, who by that stage are kind of already closed. So you consider the losses for them as well. You know, the fact that that match day experience is very much that on-trade piece is, is very important to it. So there's a lot of different factors. And then you just try and, you know, take on board. Is, is this a one-off? Are we going to be back yeah. in a couple of weeks? Is it a month? Is it two months? And then, you know, history would say that it was actually September, the end of September, I think, mm. by the time that game was was finally played. So it, it was a very interesting time, a lot of uncertainty um, and a lot of, I suppose, plans that had to be revisited fairly quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, David, we were chatting just um, before we started recording and we were talking about, you know, work from home and pressure on small businesses in terms of office space. And it's fine for the bigger companies. They've, they're capitalised enough to be able to absorb this. 
And thinking about sports as well and sponsorships, so like Heineken are a big, massive company with deep pockets, essentially, um, and they can absorb some of that risk. When you think about the, the effect the pandemic had in terms of the sports stars, so the actual talent, how difficult a time was it for that talent and how badly did it impact their ability to kind of subsidise their sports? Because the big guys are probably all right, but particularly some of the smaller guys. What was it like? Well, I think the word I'd use is disruptive. You know, it wasn't something that anybody could have put into a uh, risk analysis and and plan for in contingency. And obviously it happened reasonably suddenly as well. So, Mm. you know, disruption followed by getting comfortable with the fact that we were living in a new world, uh, be it short, medium, long term. Obviously, games stopped. I think, you know, rugby in particular took very positive steps to ensure the safety of the group and then to allow them train at home. And, you know, and I think as well, from a wider perspective, business or otherwise, it's probably given most of us time in our lives, which we've never had before to think Mm. about where we are and what we do and how we do things. Obviously, you know, like Ronan, disappointment. And those of us who work in the sports industry get an equal amount of enjoyment out of watching, supporting and participating as we do from the business side. And I think as well, then you know, adjusting to a new world. And, you know, we're still in that adjustment phase. Mm. You know, we're very fortunate that games have continued and that, you know, we'll we'll discuss football later, but in terms of rugby, we've we've been quite fortunate as a a sport that this has continued with what I'd call minor disruption. Mm. And because of the health protocols that were put around professional rugby and, and the ability for games to be played, you know, and I know we're going to talk lots about sponsorship, but, you know, the three facets that make sports sponsorship work are television rights, sponsorship and gates so we mm. lost gates and um, arguably television rights became more valuable for a period of time and and sponsorship became an exercise of management and delivery within the confines of what was allowable so you know mm. from the sports person's perspective like everybody there was a readjustment there was a period of time away from the performance environment there was a, a new focus on maintaining your own personal well-being strength and conditioning whilst outside of the team but i think you know looking back in hindsight it's great i i think most athletes probably benefited from that in the bigger picture mm-hmm. and then as we've seen big game returning to the performance environment um you know from the summer on obviously very different conditions but now even still looking at leinster you know playing in france last week and having to do a restricted movement period for a mm-hmm. few days uh, before they play connacht uh, tomorrow so you know this is likely to have an impact for a little bit longer before things i think will feel normal in anybody's business yeah and i guess we're like the thing about sports is we're all fans like we're all involved in business wise in sports but we're all fans as well and and i do remember like i remember when all sport was cancelled like I don't think I realised how much enjoyment or how much sport gave me um, until it was all gone off TV and then I realised like what a gap it meant. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the summer when there's no World Cup or European Championships. Well, uh, it certainly made us all question why we pay so much to broadcasters to watch sport. Because yeah. when you take live sport out of it, the value proposition doesn't exist yeah. at the same level. And it was, it was, it was incredible. And fair play to all the, the bodies, to the protocols and the work they've done to get sport back on TV. It's incredible. Um, but Ron, I just want to ask you a question because I think a lot of the, and David, you pointed out about the commercialization part of the value. And I think like when you think about pure reach point of view, most of the value in um, one of these kind of big tournaments comes from the television audience. That's where you'll get most of your reach. But also, I think for a brand like Heineken, having a match day experience is still super important. So how important is that for you? Or is it mostly about just the television exposure, Ron? No, it's both. I mean, the, the media exposure uh, obviously is very important in terms of reaching that kind of, I suppose, broader mass audience. Um, everything from your casual sports fans to your more kind of hardcore rugby fans, that's really important for sure. But the match day experience, I think just given the, the nature of our product, it's, it's inherently a, a sociable product. Yeah. 
Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people in this market and other markets have grown up with Heineken. So we've been associated with, you know, uh, Heineken Champions Cup now since 1995. So it's, there's a long established relationship there with the tournament. And people have so many memories, you know, some of the biggest sporting memories, uh, certainly from a rugby landscape, have been, you know, in association with Heineken almost through the Heineken Champions Cup. So so that match day is important. It's important from a, a consumer point of view because kind of having a beer with with family and friends it is a part of that social occasion and the, the social side of rugby is a key part of that whole match day experience and um, as i mentioned earlier on like the for the on trade as well publicans whether it's in dublin belfast limerick galway you know that those big heineken cup weekends are really really important to yeah. their business and equally similarly for the off trade in terms of off license for those that might be enjoying you know, the game at home, having mm. a beer. So it really is. It, it's a mixture of that big, broad awareness that the TV and the media coverage gives you. Um, but that match day experience and the face-to-face interaction with your friends and family is really important as well. Yeah. yeah. And I think uh, the, the disruption that we experienced led to innovation. And I yeah. think, you know, as Rona mentioned, the experience is a big part. The fan engagement piece was essentially ripped out of sports sponsorship overnight because there was no way to engage with people. So, you know, we've seen great creativity from brands and agencies around how they engage with their fans in a different way. And I think for me, that's a positive, you know, media days are being done on Zoom for the last 12 months. It's far more time efficient. Mm -hmm. It's more functional and it gives you the same return. Uh, The the emergence of digital, social uh, content creation and ownership. And I think it's accelerated brands and agency look agencies to look at what's the future of fan engagement look like so we have a bum on a seat and we know how to do that we have the game or the sport on television we know what that gives but it's how do we connect with the fans beyond Mm. those two measurable metrics yeah i think i think look in one way if this had happened 10 years ago it would have been very different like technology played a blinder in, in terms of um, how we all you and relied on it and it kind of kept things ticking along Ron I just want to stick with you for a second so I know myself from my point of view these plans you plan these things months 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 in advance and given the level of uncertainty at the start of all this like all those plans stopped did you do anything interim to say okay we're gonna or at what point do you start thinking well, I don't know when the games are going to come back we a we just got to do something to kind of keep our brand salient and involved with this in the interim so did you do anything and at what point did you start saying we got to do something and how quickly did you turn that around yeah well I think for the to be honest for the first week or two I think everyone was in just a, a little bit of a spin in terms of like you're dealing with something you've never in your wildest dreams had to or nightmares I should say I ever had to contemplate so there was no real I suppose uh, blueprint or roadmap as to as to how you were going to get out of this I think David mentioned earlier, just the, the general uncertainty around it is that you didn't know whether this was a, mm. you know, a week, a two week or a six month thing. I think what we did do is I think it brought us closer um, to the likes of EPCR, so who are the organisers of uh, Heineken Champions Cup. So we had an awful lot of dialogue with those guys and, you know, they were in a really, really challenging situation that they're trying to deal with the situation as it is in France. Um, which might be different from Ireland, which might be different from the UK. Mm. So really just trying to stay close to those guys. One immediate thing we did was work on a, a content piece, which looked back at the, I suppose, the best, the most memorable moments from the Heineken Champions Cup over the last 25 years. It actually coincided with it being the 25th anniversary. Right. And our own kind of key would. Did a great job, really, of just delivering content, looking back on classic games, with players from the past. So that was just an example of a way that we were able to keep our engagement going and mm. our contact with fans of rugby through that period. 
And it also affords us an opportunity as well, maybe to look at some new initiatives around kind of man of the match propositions for Heineken Champions Cup pitch side mm-hmm. branding, which in normal events, you may not have the headspace to kind of or the mm-hmm. time to actually do some of those things. So it, from that side of things, it maybe gave you a little bit of an opportunity to, to look at some of those elements as well. Yeah. Yeah. David, did you guys do anything like differently so you you were well old machine and you know what you're doing but given the pandemic and the, the you know how everything changed was there anything you i hate the word pivoted um but you know did you pivot into anything no i mean the first part once we dealt with the fact that the world was going to be uncertain for a while was to ensure we maintained the relationships with our various stakeholders partners mm. agencies and um, ensured we offered as much value as we could to existing sponsorship deals under the confines of what we were working with. Not so much in terms of pivoting, but yeah, give me a chance to disconnect from running a business for 14 odd years and say, right, okay, well, one thing that's very clear to me is that when COVID is gone, whenever that be, we as a business need to be better than we were going into it. And it was about how we look at the industry of sponsorship, activation and management 10 years from now work back. And and that led us to undertake a few projects that we haven't done before. Like um, we did a project with onside sponsorship where we we measured our athletes and we benchmarked the industry to get our own credible data. Uh, We moved into the space of social connecting on a new platform, which is for peer-to-peer learning called Oxygen. And and we've also delved into the world of VFTs and blockchain in terms of looking at the future right. activation and commercialization of athletes' image rights. And okay. those arguably are things I may not have done in yeah. a normal year because as a small business, you're too busy doing and worrying yeah. worrying about the balance sheet, the P&L and getting through the work. So, you know, I, I keep, I'll take the glass half full, mm. you know, without that, it wouldn't give me a chance to look forward. And as I said earlier, I, I want to come out of COVID whenever that might be. Let's hope for a queue. 2021 i want the business to be in better shape and, and mm. future-proofed and i want to make sure that we maintain and build our relationships with brands and sponsors and also agencies and make sure that we are equally being creative and that that creativity is brought on by urgency and we're not sitting on our hands expecting things to go back to the way they were yeah it sounds great to try and play the, the hand that's dealt you and, and play a positive come out of it positively and um, speaking of positive i know from my point of view one of the positives that come out of this pure selfishly now is the amount of tv coverage on our sport football is my thing like it was brilliant at the start and some days it's still brilliant but i'm getting a sense even myself that there's a little bit of football fatigue starting to creep in so the way it's a little bit like Football now on TV, live football is a little bit like The Simpsons. You're never an hour away from it starting on some channel somewhere. It just seems to be on all the time. So you think about it now, um, you know, you might have a game or two on Monday. You've got, you know, European football Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You've got a game on Friday, three or four Saturday, three or four Sunday. They're all live. Rowan, I'm going to start with you here. Like, do you think that, A, that there's too much football on TV at the moment and it's got it's losing its sparkle, Super Sunday doesn't feel that super anymore? And second question around that territory is like football itself is not just about the match, the three o'clock match. And when everything was centered around three o'clock kickoff, like there was a build up to it. The newspapers were full of coverage. There was a lead up. There was an anticipation. There was the match itself. Then there was the highlights package. Then there was the talking about the next day in the paper. And now because it seems like one's over and another one's just starting again, you don't have any time to kind of take in the whole thing as an experience. It's just live game, live game, live game. So they're coming thick and fast. So double barrel question. Do you think it's losing its specialness because there's too much sport on generally? And um, do you think it's coming so quickly that we can't really appreciate it properly or even activate properly around as a sponsor? Yeah, I mean, look, there's been an awful lot. I mean, I think it's probably, A, there have been more games shown. I think that's just a, a fact. And um, the broadcasters, certainly from a football context, have shown more live games. 
I think secondly, just because people have had less things to be able to do, you, you know, your, your normal social outlets aren't there. Uh, I think it can be even more pronounced that it just feels like there's just wall to wall football. I mean, as a football fan, I mean, I personally liked it. I mean, you don't have to watch those games. They're there if you want to dip in or dip out of them. So mm. I think I certainly filled a void for a lot of people when you can't do a lot of other things that you would normally do out and about with your friends, mm, you know, clubs, restaurants, you know, having the safety valve there of being able to watch a game at home actually was, I think, was welcomed by a lot of people. I think what is increasingly difficult if you're a football fan or a general sports fan is now the, the fragmentation of those tournaments now are being spread across multiple kind of platforms and that, and which is really good, I suppose, on one hand, from a, a competition point of view, that it's not too concentrated in, in too small number of, of hands. But equally, you know, if you're a, a rugby fan or a, a football fan and you want to see all those games, it's a big commitment in terms of financial outlay. And I think just in terms of accessibility overall, um, I think regardless of what sport you're involved in, you would want to make it as accessible mm. as possible that you can get to as many people as possible. And I think that, that's what the pubs are for, Ronan. <laughs> well, they weren't this year, <laughs> uh, unfortunately. So I think you want to make sure that your sport um, is accessible and that as many people as possible can, can access and view the game. So I think it, there's, that for me will be a bigger concern in terms of people's ability um, to access it as opposed to there being too much. Mm. Maybe there are too many games, but it's optional if you want. It's to. choice, it's choice, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I'm a football fan and I got very excited like everybody did over the Bundesliga restarting. Yeah. I never watched a Bundesliga game. And I haven't life. watched it since. Quick, quick, quickly realized it wasn't for me. Um, you know, I definitely have suffered a little bit from football fatigue. Um but on the positive side, like you mentioned, you know, you flick on the telly last night, oh, Man U Roma, or the night before Chelsea. Mm. I mean, you have a choice to watch it mm. or not. You know, not comparing yeah. apples and pears. Rugby can never be that way because of the physical attrition of the game. Mm. But it's a very interesting point around broadcast and, and, and the future of sport. I mean, it, for me to watch rugby alone, I have to subscribe to BT for the Prem, yeah. uh, Sky for the Lions, um, Stan Sport to watch Super 14 in Australia. Yeah. Air Sport to watch the Pro 14. Um, there's nothing on our domestic broadcaster of interest, Six Nations. Yeah, yeah. But then if you want to watch Paul O'Connell, you need Channel 4. And if you want to watch Rory Best, you need ITV. So, mm. you know, it's a very cluttered landscape broadcast for rugby, particularly. Arguably, in my opinion, it isn't a big enough game to be putting uh, barriers to engagement mm. on it, whereas football is. So, you know, yeah. you know the, the future of sports broadcast, and we're looking at new players coming into the market like Amazon, who took the England Ireland game in the Autumn Internationals. Arguably, they have the infrastructure to take the whole lot if they want it. Yeah. But you know, where we, where, how, and where are we going to be consuming our sport uh, going forward? I think that's a really um, you know, the whole separate podcast on that subject. Yeah, and I think that's a good point because when you think about Amazon or even even Facebook, like one of the things, Dave, I'm going to stick with you here, like when we think about sports um, and how, like like anything else, like any business, they have to grow. They've got to be grown or else, you know, it's just not working. So if I was a betting man, I would say that we would see, I'm going to stick with football. I'm not really a rugby fan, so I'm going to talk about football, but like I get it, I know what you're talking about, but football is kind of my thing. So I always thought the NFL model was quite an interesting model where the games are all, obviously, or the games are played in the States, but they go on tour. They've, they've done it in Mexico. They do it in, they've done it in London where they, not friendlies, not preseason friendlies, they actually play competitive games as part of the, the NFL season calendar. 
and depending in London, in a bid to grow that sport outside their home market. And I would have thought, I would have thought like the Premier League was absolutely ripe for that type of thing. So I'd say it has been discussed. They'd be thinking about playing games in, say, Africa or China or some of, some of those emerging football markets. So I think it's actually a really good idea. But can we talk about the European Super League in a second? But like, given what happened and the backlash around that, do you think that's something they could do at the moment, Dave? Do you think they'd get absolutely slated as double standards if they were to do a model like that next year or the year after? Uh, rugby, no. I mean, I think, you know, I always sit at the back of my mind and say if I was a professional player, which I wasn't, but I want to be playing against the same Welsh, Scottish, Irish, English and French teams my whole life. Or would I, you know, if I was, you know, in a, in a club like Munster Leinster, would I want to play against Crusaders and the Sharks and, you know, the Australian teams? Arguably, change is good if it's done in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think you can't compare rugby to NFL either. I mean, NFL are targeting a uh, turnover of 27 billion by mm-hmm. 2027. Um, you know, rugby is is a minority sport compared to that. Mm-hmm. Football has the capacity to expand. I certainly would be in favor of benchmarking club rugby in the same way the World Cup does every uh, four years. I think it'd be exciting. It'd be new. It'd be challenging. And I think, you know, everybody needs change on occasion, but it has to be done in the right way. And mm. I think the European Super League is an example of how not to do it mm. in the right way. Yes, yeah. underneath or heuristically the concept, it had some legs, but it was driven by a financial decision and, and it wasn't agreed within the good governance mm. of the sport. It was completely rogue. Um, I'm going to get into that in a second. Ron, mm. I, just, I want to ask you a question, Ron, because you mentioned this earlier on. You mentioned about the, the Euros and we were, it was great. I mean, it's a bit weird Ireland aren't in them, but it was, would have been great to have a tournament here to give people something to, to actually get out. But after much uncertainty, we finally lost it a couple of weeks ago. So I guess it was inevitable given the like the uncertainty that that exists in the country was always going to happen but like as a tournament sponsor how disappointed was that even though Ireland went in and how disappointed was that to when it finally came even though you might have been expecting it it's disappointing for sure that like, I mean I think look as the as the weeks and months went on I think it was looking you know increasingly unlikely so I don't think it came as a as a great surprise I mean my heart does go out to the the guys in Dublin City Council um you know and that period that I've had a team working on it for yeah. Probably three years now. So whatever disappointment I think we would feel at a, at a brand level, those guys have put in, you know, Trojan work and the FBI and that as well. So I think first and foremost, I think as disappointed or even more disappointed for those guys, you know, it's a real shame. I think Dublin would have put on a, a fantastic tournament. I mean, it was a, it would have been a great opportunity to showcase the Aviva. And there were fan zones and fan villages planned for... Marion Square, Dublin Castle, mm-hmm. and even with Ireland not being in it, which was disappointing, I still think the tournament would have been fantastic. And I think Irish soccer fans would have embraced it, mm-hmm. regardless of whether Ireland were participating or not. I mean, we, we've a proven track record in that. So I think that's disappointing. I think that said, Euro 2020 is still a big, big tournament. Yeah. And I think as, a, as an official partner, we still see it as a massive opportunity across the summer uh, to engage with kind of football fans. So yes, disappointed. Yeah. But certainly from a, an overall kind of campaign point of view, we'll put together a you know a great campaign. And as football fans, we're we're still really really mm. looking forward to it. International football is quite interesting now because there's always this. And it's quite a polarising view and, and everything has to be taken with a pinch of salt. But there's a view that money is ruining sport and, and the European Super League is, is kind of a bad example, a great example of it, but it was, it was nonsense. We'll touch it in a second. But when you think about international football, like I'm showing my age here, but when I grew up, international football was the big thing because it was the elite. It was where the best players played and, and like the English team would have been a great team would have been better than any of the English club sides. I mean, and it's the only time you got to see Platini or Marco van Basten and you saw them because you didn't see them week in, week out because the English league was predominantly English players. 
And now, arguably, I mean, Manchester City or Barcelona in their day would probably win the World Cup. They'd be better than any international side because they can just buy the best of everybody. So, and as a result now, interest in international football has kind of dropped off a little bit. It's just not the same as it used to be. And you even see players kind of pulling on your shirt of your your country. It doesn't seem to have the same draws used to be because there's so much money. Their career is club and, you know, international is, is a separate thing altogether. So has football, Dave, I'm going to start off with you. Do you think there's too much money or has has that taken a bit of the shine, the gloss off at what, what was the best football in town, international football? Has club football and the money made it just less interesting now? I, I wouldn't say that it's made it less interesting, but from an Irish perspective, it's made it harder to compete. You know, obviously we can watch the global superstars every day on our television. Mm. And, you know, we were fortunate enough to be involved in organising the Liverpool Celtic game back in 2014 and the Dublin Super Cup prior to that. And, you know, we got bigger crowds at those games than we get at most current Irish international games. You know, we are a fickle nation as sports fans. We are definitely skewed by the performance of the team. And the performance in football has obviously risen with the investment in the Prem and beyond. Mm. And we haven't been able to keep up with it. So, you know, I think all these things are intrinsically linked. We're all proud uh, to be Irish. We're all proud to support our football team as we are any other team that represents the the jersey or the, or the green of Ireland. But when we're not achieving success, uh, we become disillusioned. And, and we're living in a world mm. where change happens so quickly. And there's so many other distractions. You know, people want to follow success, but then they lose interest when there's no success. And I think, you know, yeah. it, it's all intrinsically linked. And arguably, yes, the investment in football over the last 20 years has changed the game. Mm. And we haven't been able to keep up with that rate of change to compete at international level. It's funny because I see it the same thing when I'm talking to clients, like in terms of consumers, we're in an expectation economy. Consumers expect they're, they're unforgiving of bad experiences. So like Amazon, I can get something on Amazon delivered, you know, next day, free, free returns. And that's your expectation. So now you expect that from everybody. You expect that from your local Irish retailer. And that's just what happens. And I think we're, we're unforgiving when we're used to watching amazing football or any sport. Then when we go and watch Ireland, we go, we're very unforgiving. We go, we don't forgive the fact that well, it's much harder for us. We're but again, kind of small it's, li- it's linked country. to the change in humanity. 20 years ago, we didn't have the internet. Now yeah. we have the attention span of goldfish and we can get information about anything, anywhere at our fingertips. So yeah. our whole, I mean, I don't want to get deep in psychology based on this, but our whole, our brains have changed, mm. you know, mm. because of the rate of change of human society. And sport will always be a hugely valuable part of that. But if you've got a finite amount of time, you want to watch teams win, yeah. not lose. And, oh, I, I'm a Man United fan. Maybe a slightly polarized view of it, but, you know, we, we get behind Irish rugby when they're winning mm. and we're the first to be knocking them down the pub over a pint when they're losing. Oh, I know. And it's you always know? the thing. We're like, we're going to win the World Cup and then we have a bad performance and we're the worst team in the world. So we got we got to rip it up and start again. Ronan, what's your point of view on club versus like the money that goes in behind club and the purity, I suppose, of international football? As, as a sponsor who kind of works with both from an engaging point of view, what's your point of view on it? I think it's yeah. I think it's interesting. I mean, I think certainly from the the club side of things. I mean, I think you know, in terms of the business end of those big tournaments. I mean, you're talking about a small number of teams from a small number of countries. In reality, that are going to win, and I think that's fair. But I think you know, then within those tournaments, whether it's the Champions League or the Europa League, there's a whole lot of other teams from other countries who are just in there competing. And I think it's really important that they still have that access to be able to compete against the very, very best, because that's how you kind of, I suppose, reduce the bar in terms of the the elite versus those below. So I think that access to being able to play against the top teams, I think is really, really important. Plus those guys are, 
you know, there's a lot of revenue to be to be earned, even if you're not necessarily winning those yeah, tournaments. True. Participation is really important. And I think then from the international side of things, I think there's a there's maybe a, a leveling of the pitch from, from the international side of things because you've got a you've got to play the hand you're dealt with there. Mm. You can't buy and sell players in an international setting. You can dig up grandparents and get like we <laughs> did. <laughs> Or you play that card very well. Yeah. But, but there is a difference there. And I think, I still think nations really do like those big tournaments that mm. only come around every four years. Yes, you know, are they perfect? You know, can everyone win it? Some will argue that, well, the European Championships was eight teams and Euro 88, it's now 24. But I would generally see that as a very positive yeah. thing, that the more access there is to teams, the more countries that can experience it, the more fans... I think I generally will be just in favor of participation yeah. and accessibility as opposed to exclusivity and elitism. You know? yeah. I, I would totally agree with that. I think participation is the most important thing. It gives the country and mm. the people such a lift and mm. such pride to follow their national team. So, of course, it's disappointing when we don't qualify for tournaments. But when we do, you know, the whole country stops. We yeah. all get behind it. You know, we are seriously proud and, and we engage with it and we follow and we learn about the players and we watch yeah. the games. Whether we come 16th, 8th or 1st is almost secondary. To mm-hmm. When you're not making those major knockout tournaments, um, again, the interest wanes very quickly. Yeah, the fans are, like, the sport is nothing without the fans. And Ron, you mentioned that in the article. So, spoiler alert, going to have a little bit of a, a rant here. Like, in your article, when you talked about, you know, when the players' voices echo, you, and you pointed that out about, like, it, it doesn't feel right when the fans aren't there. And I know television audiences are huge and English football is looking at, you know, China for growth. And they've probably tapped out in terms of audiences in Europe. But I think what happened with the European Super League was a complete two fingers to the fans. Like, it was, it was utter madness. I'm, I'm amazed. I actually still look back in there. It's only what? A couple of weeks ago, I still look back in the whole thing and go, what? It was a complete fiasco from start to finish. Now, on the one hand, I don't really, I mean, I can see why these big club owners, these egomaniac business people all had a meeting with themselves, unbeknownst to anybody else, the managers and the players and they went about it and they all met. It was sheer madness. Actually, the people I find most culpable in this are JP Morgan. They were the guys who were brought in as consultants. These guys are supposed to know what they're talking about. They're supposed to know culture. They're supposed to know what's going on. They're supposed to advise people. They're supposed to be the smartest guys in the room and they're the only people who are independent. So it was a complete misstep, I think, from their point of view. And thankfully, the whole thing folded, as I say, quicker than Superman on laundry day. But I, I wonder what's happened to JP Morgan in terms of reputational damage and we're living in an era of professional liability I wonder like how they'll come out of that how will they come out unscathed but just to think about the whole thing for a second like Dave I'm going to start with you you know fan unrest not having the fans on board and, and going against the governing bodies that seems complete madness like w- like would that be would that uh, fan unrest would that be an issue for sponsors in terms of if there was disharmony in the camp like would you find that a hard sell if you were you know, when any clubs were involved in well, it? it definitely makes it harder but I think if you look at this from a corporate context it's a complete failure of governance you know who mm. is in charge of the game globally and regionally so, you know, again, like this is a, like you say, a rogue group of people. If you parallel that to a company, if a rogue group of executives tried to overthrow the management team of, of Heineken, for instance, and they were being advised by JP Morgan, well, we'd be, we'd be reading about it for mm. months as, a, mm. as an example of corporate governance failure. So for me, this is an example of sports governance failure. And it comes back to who is running the game. And I don't disagree, as I said earlier, that the, the notion didn't have legs. Mm. But it was just done in the wrong way. And change mm. is good. Uh, and yeah. No issues with that. The way they went about it was wrong. And I'm also quite delighted that uh, they failed. 
However, I think it certainly should be sowing a seed of, well, change is good, mm. you know, and, and we can run parallel competitions. And yeah, we, we need change in order to generate new audiences. We need to increase sponsorship fees. That's all understandable, mm. but do it the right way. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, not as a band of very wealthy individuals who say, you know, we've got an idea who's on board. But I guess, I mean, the whole thing, like a competition where it doesn't matter whether you come first or last. It makes no difference. There's nothing to win. It makes no odds. No one gets relegated or relegated. And then to even say, as the 12 founding clubs, even if it grows, they can never be relegated. So what's the point? It doesn't make any point. Ronan, what, are your, what were your views on the whole thing? Well, my initial reaction as an Arsenal fan was to do was it. What are we, do, what are we doing in this league? That was your initial reaction. What, what are we doing in this league? We've no business yeah. being there. <laughs> After watching them struggle last night, it's kind of funny, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I would echo everything kind of David said there. I mean, I think there were a few things. It was incredible how well kept under wraps it was, yeah. I, I thought, because it had been simmering along over the years, but I don't think anyone saw it coming when it came. So in this day and age of leaks and that, I thought that was incredible that it kind of came as a surprise yeah. um, to everyone. Um, it was like a bit of a one of those failed rebellions that kind yeah. of was launched and was put down yeah. uh, very, very quickly. I mean... As David mentioned, a lot of very experienced people behind it, and you know, to to maybe you know misread the, the room yeah. in terms of how people were going to receive it was was incredible. incredible yeah. And I think one great thing about it was it has put the fans and the importance of fans mm-hmm. back on the table. And I think regardless of whatever sport, and I think if anything that the last twelve months or so has has shown to us is. And it's not a cliche. It's absolutely fundamentally true that without bands, there are no mm. brands, sponsorships. There's no industry. There's no sport. Mm. And I think if nothing, it's really put that into sharp focus. And I think that can only be a really positive thing. I think whether or not the issue has fully gone away, maybe for now, but you would sense that there still is a belief, rightly or wrongly, with those bigger clubs that something needs to change. So mm. you would say it feels to me, really in the country, that it's maybe a bit of a a stay of execution, um, but it, it may revisit in some other guys yeah. Yeah. down the road. Yeah, maybe. I, I, at the start of it all, I thought it was just a, I, I thought it was a big PR stunt to get more money out of the, and, and to get more seniority and, and input into the reshuffling of Champions League formats and all those kinds of stuff that the, the big club said, we are this club and we can walk away. But yeah, it's just the fact it was kept quiet for so long is just astonishing. I, I think the other thing, Dave, was the timing couldn't have been worse. I mean, you're in a, yeah, you're at a time exactly, when people yeah. are really struggling, sports organisations are struggling, which maybe was the attractiveness in it, but equally, it's not a time for people to be separating. It's a time for people to be working together as opposed to kind of splitting apart. And I think maybe the, the timing certainly probably didn't, didn't help yeah. either. Yeah, because you but, mentioned that about like, you know, you, you work more closely with the governing bodies and this just seemed like madness to go against them. You're right. Governance is the key to it because, you know, there has been a, a World Club Club Cup that's mm. been run. It's kind of gone under the radar. Mm. So essentially the governors of football have failed, I think, in that proposition. So I can understand the appetite for change and wanting to do it right. But I keep coming back to you. Yeah, Rona mentioned it very well. Like your fans are your customers. Mm. They're your consumers. You know, your governance structure man, um, is their duty is to the game and to make sure it's run fairly and equitably and, and to challenge that. And if you don't take all the stakeholder engagement into any proposals, they will fail. Mm. 
Yeah. So if you do it in the right way, you know, maybe this is something that gets planned for 2025 and it's, mm. you know, it's built, it's overseen and it's delivered in a way that the fans, the sponsors, the broadcasters, the clubs and and the, you the governing know, bodies, governors I mean, of football exactly. say, OK, we, we see the merit in this yeah. and we're happy to support it. Yeah, I, you can't go off and set up their own league just because they're not, not happy with the money they're getting. And, and money has to trickle down. Like there's no nothing outside of the Premier League if they go off and keep all the money themselves. It trickles down to the other mm. clubs. Well, what the as well? They have to say, I mean, the, to see, you know, the, the the captains and the managers of the teams mm. thrown out under the media, yeah. not having been briefed about it. I mean, it just, it, it looked so wrong. And, it, you know, it you're a right? felt for those guys that they were thrown in front of a, a, a camera crew and asked yeah. to give a position. And, you I, know, and I, I love their honesty. There's no true process at all. Really. Yeah. And they were, and they yeah, were yeah. honest about yeah. it. Exactly, and Pep came out and he kind of said it's nonsense to have no co- to have no competition in sport. And um, David, when we think about that, you know how money has to trickle down, sponsorships and, and commercial funding of sports generally. How important is that at a grassroots level? Because you know, if Heineken walked away from the Champions League, someone else to step in. They don't need the money; they'll get it from somebody. But when we think outside elite sports, how important is sponsorship at a grassroots level for for the sports and maybe some of the, the less popular sports and those sports stars? Yeah, I like. I think obviously it's a huge must-have for any sport is to have the support of commercial brands or commercial brands behind them. And and the difficulty here is that Ronan probably knows full well he probably receives thirty proposals a week of stuff to sponsor. Um, and you know you've got to you've got to sort of start at the end point and work back. Is what's your value proposition? Um, how can you give a return on investment and objectives? You know how can you amplify a brand message? I mean you have to think strategically about why everybody needs a sponsor. Everybody wants to sponsor. Like they get that, but the, mm-hmm. the the why and the what can we do for you piece, I think, is often lacking. So whether it's boxing, rowing, hockey, camogie, hurling, you know, everybody needs the commercial support of people who are behind the game. Uh, I think uh, research and analytics and data help to drive the conversation. Um, but ultimately, in a smaller country like this, a lot of the sponsorship decisions are made by uh, people who have an interest or a connection to the mm-hmm. sport. So it's getting the balance going forward. Of you know, I, I received quite a lot of sponsorship proposals from governing bodies you know or i'm asked from rights holders for help on things and it's often hard to see what the value proposition everybody knows they need an amount of money and they know Mm. why they need that amount of money but very few people i think have a full 360 view on you know how do you value that ask and how do you give a return on investment Mm. yeah it's a fascinating area ron i want to i'm going to ask you this is more of a maybe a marketing question so look there's so many sponsors involved in elite level sports so and you can be a tournament sponsor or you can have an affiliation with a club directly. I looked at Man United have like 23 official sponsors. Like and that's just on the one of They probably have that's top tier. Brilliant work by United's commercial team, but it's a problem for brands because it's cluttered. And one of the things when I'm talking to brands about activating sponsorships, I try and say, uh, you know, try try and think about it going, what are you bringing to the sport? I think a lot of sponsors borrow heavily from the sponsorship without bringing their own point of view to it. So what I mean is I try and say is, well, if you took sponsor A off this and put sponsor B in, would the activation change, would the general public notice or care? Um, like, is it just a badging exercise? So, Ronan, when you think about trying to cut through, how do you do that? Or what do you do? Or how do you make sure that when you're looking at a sponsorship, like Heineken are not just another sponsor of rugby. How do you stand out, bring your brand to life and make it more kind of, make it feel like only Heineken could do this? I kind of alluded to it earlier. I think one of the pieces of it is around the, the consistency and the commitment to it. So, I mean, I think, you know, both from a, a football and rugby point of view, you're looking at a, you know, really strategic, important platforms for us that we've had for 25 years. So, I mean, I think, you know, that's that's important in the first sense. 
I think you're right. It is a, a cluttered landscape, not just within our immediate category, but because of the success in terms of rugby's development here and its growth, it's incredibly popular. So more brands have come into that space, um, whether it's financial services brands, telcos, etc. Mm-hmm. So it's it is a, a crowded space. I think you've got to have kind of something to bring um, to the sponsorship. I think from our side, you know, it's been very much long-term commitment. It's very much around the, the social side of the game, mm. uh, whether that's in football or whether that's in rugby. And I think hopefully it's around kind of adding value to the to the match day. So whether that's kind of the standard match day experience or getting people access to behind the scenes kind of experience in that as well. So. I think it's trying to bring something new to it, um, which is what we try to do, and try and do it in a with a tone of voice and a personality that would be consistent with mm-hmm. the Heineken brand around sociability, yeah. lightheartedness, humor, and inclusivity. I think that's really what what we've always tried to do within yeah. that kind of sporting yeah, space. There's a, yeah, there's a very distinct, unique Heineken kind of personality that shines through in all the ads. David, just one more, one thing I want to ask you about now, because I see it doesn't so much happen with the with the big global brands, but I've seen it happen quite a lot with local sponsorships and local, local. well, not, they could be international brands, but they've offices in Ireland, they've autonomy. So quite often I see people are the official car supplier of, say, the GAA, and they don't have any activation budget to do anything with that. So they're an official, that was one that happened, they're official car supplier to the GAA. It was a license they bought and they didn't do anything marketing with it. Uh, so it's just yeah, literally and, pointless and, and it was comes, quite a bit of money. Yeah, it comes back to our point earlier on, you know, a, a rights holder, an event, a team or an individual will have a requirement for commercial support. And when you break that down, you know, you have a certain amount of rights that match with that and then you have to get creative with others. So, you know, for when you do a cost benefit analysis on it, maybe it makes sense to have license and to be an official car partner and to have visibility and that might work for a brand like an official car partner of Limerick Hurling versus perhaps uh, the Heineken who have great heritage and, and essentially owned more than 50% of the rugby space for the last 20 years I would say uh, I know you have a competitor in the same category but you know the two brands are so synonymous that activation becomes almost mm. expected and understood you look at the smaller sponsorships and i think again it's back to that point is that you know if you sit down at the end of a fiscal year and say what does next year look like you know and you and you do your pnl and you look at your cash flow and you look at your balance sheet and say well we need x now where's yeah. x going to come from what rights do we have to sell what value can we add do we need 10 small sponsors or just one big sponsor? Do we need a blended model? You know, how do we try to keep the value with each of those potential partners versus it becoming over cluttered? And we've all seen sponsorship models that have become far too cluttered to give anybody value. But again, mentioned earlier, there's a lot of people who want to be on board and want to follow success and uh, and, and they're not so concerned. They're mm. just interested in, in the association. So I don't think there's a one size fits all. You know, I look at a team or I look at a, a rights holder and say, well, look, what, what's it, where's your value first? Mm-hmm. So let's instead, instead of looking at the number you need, let's try and put a quantify the value you can offer. And then let's see where the fit is. And then let's check how creditable it is in that. Yeah. And then let's check how we would measure that. And then we can actually go back and begin to put a value on it. Um, I had a proposal from a rights holder recently, a minority sport for a national team. And it said, you know, we need 150 grand. And they said, look, we can give you a name on the jersey and we can give you signs here and signs that. I mean, sponsorship has changed. Yeah. You know, really, that's like going into a corporate with the, with the handout saying, can you help us? Yeah. As opposed to going in and saying, do you know what? We can give you 500,000 euros worth of return on investment yeah, yeah. if you get involved with us. And here's how we plan to do that. Mm. And by the way, at the end, here's the ask. This is what it's going to cost you. And I think it's kind of reframing that whole conversation and then getting the balance right between commercial 
outputs and inputs and philanthropy and support and association and success. And, you know, arguably the more successful you are, the easier it is to find sponsorship, whether you're an individual yeah. or a team. Yeah, competition. I, I would say just there's a lot more value in some of the the less known sports, and the sponsor does an awful lot more for raising the profile of some of the the lesser known sports. And Ron, I know big brands like Heineken. Look, you're a huge brand in global brands. So as a business model, it it makes more sense for you guys to to get involved with things like Champions League than to have every market going off and doing its own thing and it's kind of because even just for pure brand consistency look and feel there's governance in, in how your brand shows up in that but I do think smaller sponsorships they care more it means more to them and quite often they connect more so it's, I guess it's a, it's a scale it's a reach versus a kind of how involved people are with that sport and it is a trade-off between scale and the importance of it but I think as a sponsor you can get real value for some of the smaller things if you've got money to activate them in media well, Ronan do you think Heineken would ever get involved in, in a kind of big way locally with sports or do you think it's just not the way we're set up big brands we, we just kind of that's the way we operate we do the big marquee things that we can say one sponsorship executed in every market because the Champions League is in every market what's your view on yeah. local sports it's different really I mean as you say uh, UCL our, our Champions League is absolutely truly global from a Heineken point of view so that will be activated in 150 markets mm. around like it's just soccer is a truly global game in a way that just rugby isn't yet you know so there's a difference there um i think certainly from our side we would strategically for the last 25 years rugby has been a, a bigger priority for us than than champions league and that's yeah. large down to the fact that there's a there's an immediate local relevance to yeah. the tournament isn't unfortunately for Champions League locally now, albeit there's a lot of interest in the English teams and that. Yeah. But from an activation point of view, and that rugby is really important for us. In terms of the local piece, I mean we have long-standing partnerships with with Connacht Rugby and also Rugby as well, uh, and we also work and have worked with Rugby Players Ireland since kind of 2017 and that mm. as well. So we do try and you know add a local element to those uh kind of european or, or global platforms and that as well and i suppose to the point that was raised earlier you know we do get lots of proposals around yeah. things but i think you know unless we can really get value and add value to that and mm. um, you know it, it, we can spread ourselves too thinly and nobody yeah, yeah. is going to win win out of that you know so i think yes first and foremost it is about the, the global platforms because we're, we're a global organization, albeit with a strong local relevance. We try to have that local feel as well. And look, there's always opportunities. We're always looking at things. If there are certain things that would make sense for us to look at, we, we would absolutely do that. But it is just trying to get that mix between focus, really yeah. leveraging what we have, because we have a lot. You know, We would like to do more around Europa League, for example, yeah, which yeah. we have behind Zero, which we don't do massive amounts with yet. Mm. Champions League, there's still more we can do. There's still more we can do around Heineken Champions Cup. So I think we always want to look to see, are we fully leveraging what we have, you know, to maximum mm, yeah. effect before we yes. just simply go on and take on other platforms? Yeah. You know? and, and Dave, I don't want to take over your role here, Ronan, but I'm interested to see where uh, alcohol-free beer fits in because some of the research we did this year showed that there was a, a large proportion of population were going to be drinking more non-alcoholic beer and arguably it has a better fit with mm. sport and certain categories. Do you see it as an emerging category from your brand perspective? It, it's, yeah, absolutely, David. I mean, we're we're investing massively in, in Heineken Zero. We can see it's, you know, no and low alcohol is is only going to grow mm. and it's growing rapidly, um, certainly with, with younger audience, but across the board, 
Um, and I think, you know, testament to that is the fact that for Europa League, it is all driven by Heineken Zero. So that's the mm. second biggest club competition in Europe that we have now said that's a Heineken Zero property. So I think that gives you an indication of how big we see that growing. And that's that's going to continue over the next kind of coming mm. years for sure. Absolutely right. Yeah. D- Dave, can I just ask a question? We're nearly out of time, but I just want to ask you a question. So, you know, w- when you go to the when you deal with some of the, the big global sponsorships, there's probably not so much a rate card, but there's probably very strict. Here's what you get. It's quite by the book. And I often think that if you're dealing with some of the less popular sports and dealing with some of the, the smaller stars, as because I said, they're probably more, um, the money means more to them. So you're probably going to get better return on that. Like you'll have a much better working relationship with them. So is that true? Is there better, is there a value to be had in, in looking beyond like, some of the big sports? Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. But it probably comes back to the comments you made earlier about activation. So, yeah. you know, the cost of telling somebody that you're doing something with somebody who's less known is higher yeah. than the cost of telling somebody you're doing something with somebody who's very well known. So it's a, it's a balancing act. So it comes back to, you know, a fit. If somebody fits your brand, then it's much easier to do the storytelling and to amplify the messaging than it is if somebody doesn't fit your brand. The other part about that is that, you know, this, in my opinion, and I may be different to the rest, but I don't have a rate card. I mean, we understand the value that our individual athletes or teams of rights holders can deliver because that's measured independently. So we know what they're worth. But at the end of the day, it's only they're only worth what a brand is willing to pay. So I Mm. can't walk into Heineken and say, I want six figures for this person Mm. to do that. And then saying, no, we don't have that. Mm. It's a pointless conversation. If I have the data and insights and analytics to back that up and to prove the value proposition, I have a starting point. But ultimately, it would still come back to Ronan saying, well, you know, this does make sense and we see the value, but we don't have it in our budget. So that's the end of the conversation. So Mm. for me, this is where the traditional art of engagement, storytelling, measuring and negotiating is still a very important part of this. And I'm sure it's no different if you're buying rights to global propositions Mm. to, you know, you have you have your worth, you have your budget. And it's about meeting somewhere that makes sense for all parties, Mm. because if it's not a win win, it doesn't work. Yeah, Dave, and I think just back to that uh, activation side of things, I would totally agree around the, the need to make sure that you're you're activating the sponsorship and, and not just badging it. I think one of the things that's been really good for us over the last kind of, I suppose, four or five, six years is the, you know, the, the continued growth in digital and what you can do digitally and what we can do as a brand in terms of engaging directly in real time with our consumers and fans around rugby. So that's that's been a really, really important tool for us. And I think that will continue to be really important for us kind of going forward. Yeah, okay. Yeah, totally agree with that. Cool, brilliant. Dave, just before we go, David, just before we go, can you just, for people listening, give me a, the elevator pitch, just give people a, 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 the background of what your what lineup does, exactly what you do and, and what your business is and where people can find out a little bit more if they want to. Yeah, well, we would we would call ourselves a sports marketing company. We have a, a core strand in managing athletes, which involves their on-field and off-field uh, management and commercialization. We also work with brands, rights holders, and agencies to create strategies for sponsorship and activation and consults as well. Uh, we're based in Dublin 6 in Ranla, and I suppose in the modern world, the easiest way to find us is on Instagram um, at lineupsme. Cool. 
Brilliant. I must give you a shout because I'm looking for a sponsor for my sports career. It's taken a bit of a, um, it's had a bit of a quiet patch <laughs> yeah. since since lockdown. But I'll be back. I'll, I'll, look, I mean, I don't want six figures. A few quid will do me. Football team. Yeah, no problem. You better asking for a zero zero hundred yeah. on those jerseys. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. That's <laughs> it, guys. That's all she wrote. We're out of time. So thanks today. Thanks for joining me, Ronan. Thank you, Dave. Uh, th- Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me, David. And um, before I go, I just want to say that actually the most, by far the most outrageous thing about that European Super League was what Arsenal were doing in it. I mean it, like, surely you have to have some European credentials. You have to have won a European Cup to be part of this. It's just like, that made the whole thing a joke for me. But anyway. Um, Must open the checkbook. It's just, yeah, I don't know. It's ridiculous. Ronan's an Arsenal fan um, and we keep saying each other. So thanks to Andrea on sound and Kieran Marketing as well. And as always, thanks to our partners in the Irish Times Media Solutions. If you like this episode, listen back, tell your colleagues or type Irish Times Inside Marketing into your search engine of choice and you'll find us. Until next time, stay safe. Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions.